0: This is a house that Jack built. Y'all remember this house? This was the
1: All right, so uh, so the reason we, I, you know, we'd wanted you to have, come on the show or on the podcast before, and uh, we, and it was it was before she had passed away. You know, right. I think it was probably, you know, I I wanted you to come on the show, and then uh, I, and I, and she, I had a sense that all right, maybe it was in the news that she was sick, or maybe it was just sort of organic that you know let's have her, let's do it now. But um so let's let's talk a little bit about yeah. uh, uh Aretha Franklin. And so I I so the the personal part of this is is what yeah. I, I wanted to start with. So when did you discover Aretha Franklin?
2: Wow. Uh I it's, you know, before I really can remember uh in the sense that her records were played, you know, in my house quite a bit. Um, certainly from a very young age, I was aware of her, of her music. And, and I think though that, you know, when I really started to get into her, when I got a little older, um, I would say when I was in high school and in early college, and that was when I really, you know, I'd always loved her stuff that I, that I knew, but I didn't necessarily listen to her kind of, you know, her entire catalog or to kind of album cuts and that stuff. But that was really, you know, as much as I knew her when I was young, kind of knew her th- music throughout my my early life, it was really when I was in college that I just was completely blown away by the depth and breadth of her catalog. Um, and I remember one thing, and it wasn't the first album that I was listening to necessarily, but I remember like the first times I'd listened to the Amazing Grace album and to th- to the the incredible moment in the early seventies when she was so deeply, deeply returning to those gospel traditions while also kind of exploring early seventies funk possibilities, you know, and, uh, and um, the amazing grace album is just, I was listening to it again today and it is just such an astonishing piece of work. So I guess it's, you know, it's hard to say in one way because I just remember her being around the records being played in my house a lot. You know, kind of like the you know Rolling Stones or Chuck Berry or other people that I just listened to from before I really had consciousness of who they were. But then that moment when I was in my like early twenties, really just completely immersing myself in in her stuff. Um, Although her work is so amazing that I'm still kind of rediscovering things I hadn't listened to well enough before. But that's that's me. I you know it goes back very very. Very uh, early for me, uh, and then you know, r- resurges and reframes a little later.
1: Yeah, so f- for me, it's it, the origin is is a little bit kind of funny and a little bit body. I think you know, I don't. Oh. Never, I don't really get to say body very often. But uh, so my dad and his brother mm-hmm. were, were let's let's just say they they had a, a an affinity for African American ladies. And so okay. in the like in the 50s at some the story is at the fi- in the 50s at some point my uncle Jack is in Vegas and has a lost weekend with Aretha Franklin. And I'm like, "Oh, oh okay." And but then as as we all grew up, he wasn't sure if it was Aretha Fra- cuz he'd gotten older and he wasn't sure if right. it was Aretha Franklin or Lena Horn. And I'm like, "Oh, okay, well, They're two very different things, but either way that, you know, and it's that thing where you just go, okay, you know, let's, let's just take it on faith. that My uncle might've slept with Aretha Franklin and now I should go figure out who that is. And, uh, Eric, are you here now? I am. There he is. I got him. Eric, Charles, Charles, Eric. Hey Eric. Good to meet you. Good to meet meet you too. We've been talking a little bit about sort of, you know, music nerdery and all that sort of stuff and uh and we just kind of wrapped up where i asked charles how he how he discovered aretha franklin and so i i, I wanted to build on yours a little bit because i think you're going to know who this guy is so uh one summer day at the pub marcus nickel called me up and he said hey come on over let's listen to some records and uh, i think you know marcus right charles uh, Marcus nickel. Yeah. The bald guy, he painted the,
2: um, mural at the pub. Well, I know about that. Yeah. You know, I, I may, I may, if I saw him recognize okay. him, but I know who that is. So, okay. yeah.
1: So, uh, he was like to this day, he's sort of, he's a solitary figure. Like he's a, a like just a physical specimen of a human being with an yeah. amazing record collection and, you know kind of i don't know that he ever worked a day in his life like i don't even know how any of this worked but right uh, one day he's like come on over let's listen to some records and i'm like okay and we started uh we spent an afternoon listening to gospel quartets oh yeah like cool. the detroiters and the Solsters and, and sure. those, those that sort of thing and yeah uh, and then he's like yeah let's listen to, let's listen to this aretha franklin box set and i'm like Oh, yes cool. let's do that and uh, <laughs> and it was that moment where you just go oh this is like it was yeah like when I don't I don't remember exactly which uh, group Jackie Wilson was in but when Jackie Wilson is just a voice in the group that's a whole different right. level that's a different level right. of singing you know totally. and so yeah we sat there and I'm like I Marcus I just have to have all of your record collection. And it was, <laughs> and it was that thing where like burning MP3s or importing MP3s into the computer was still a new thing at the time. Sure. And sure. so like I would go to his house and I'd get like a grocery bag full of CDs Then I'd take them home and I'd spend the weekend importing them all onto a hard drive. And that was sort of the beginnings of this massive collection of hard drives that I have full right. of music. And so, yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, I remember those, I remember those days very well too. And it just felt like. You know the the digital revolution just was this like giant open field where you could get all that you know that that yeah. was such a new and exciting feeling for that for that time yeah
1: yeah so uh, Eric do you do you have any uh, Aretha Franklin consciousness moments? I don't. I'm just here to listen. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> so uh, so then like let's see so then. What's what's sort of one of the highlights for you, for her, of hers, musically?
2: Wow. Uh, There are literally dozens of things that leap to mind even immediately, and I'm sure there would be others. Um, I think, well, for one thing, I think, you know, that she's one of those artists who has a, you know, recording is one way of measuring a a musician's greatness, and there are other ways of doing that—live performance, like we were talking about before, and other things. But I, one of the things I think is just so remarkable about Aretha Franklin is that, from a period of about 1967 until I would say 1975 or six, every album she put out was, in its own way, a masterpiece. Um, and what she's doing in that period. Is really rewriting the language of American popular music around her talent, her singular, incredible, which we've still not ever, we're, ne- we're never gonna be able to fully reckon with what a genius she was. What a great singer, of course, but also what a great piano player, a uh, great songwriter, and, and, and a great record maker who was very much involved in that. Um, and each of those works is really powerful. I guess the two things that I'd pull out. Again, it's really difficult, and I'm sure I'll think of seven others, you know, when we're done, but um, but one of them is the, actually we were talking before about the Amazing Grace album, um, her version of Amazing Grace, which is about 10 minutes long, if I'm remembering correctly, it's an extended version, in which she really, like, slows it down, doesn't, like, deconstruct the melody, but but adds this le- this level of, of gospel riffing in which she's doing all of these kind of runs and all this kind of call and response stuff, which she's pulling straight out of those gospel traditions. But she's reframing this song in the way she was so good at with everything. You know, she totally transformed these songs that she would sing to the point where like Otis Redding, after she sings Respect, and records respect is like, well, that's not my song anymore. Right. Dusty Spring, Dusty Springfield. <laughs> Here's her version of son of a preacher, man. Dusty Springfield's like, well, that's not my song anymore. You know, just on and on that way. And so I love what she does with that because she's really, as she often did, taking this kind of standard piece of repertoire, which she did in jazz, which she did in uh, R and B, which she did. She did some great country songs. I mean, she was so good at that and just Putting it around this singular talent, while at the same time calling out to a community, not only of listeners, but also of other musicians. And the other thing I'll mention, because I I love to mention every time, and I got to credit my mentor at UW-Madison, Craig Werner, who wrote, has written a couple incredible books about American music, and um, a couple in particular that talk about Aretha Franklin. Um, but one time I was talking with him and he had actually not heard this before either, but he said, you know, have you ever heard the unedited version of chain of fools, which of course, you know, chain of fools, it's like one of her best hits. It's one of her biggest hits, but there's a version of it on the reissue of lady soul, the album that she released 50 years, one of her three classic albums she released in 1968, 50 years ago this year. Um, There's a version of it on there that opens with that same classic Joe South guitar riff, that bluesy swampy thing. But then rather than going right into the melody, she goes into this gospel bluesy moan and she presents this prologue to the song that after, you know, the, the version that came out, it just, again, like it completely recontextualizes her own material so those are two that immediately come to mind, but I mean, there are just there are dozens and dozens dating back from her earliest recordings when she was doing jazz uh, and pop on on Columbia Records, right up through the famous Nesson Dorma performance at the Grammys where she subbed right. in for Luciano Pavarotti. Yes. You know, there's just there's just to the to the thing she did a few years ago when she sang in front of Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and she did Natural Woman and blew it away. You know, like it there's no there's no period in which Aretha Franklin did not leave us with these incredible transformative performances. And she probably, and I know she did this because I saw her live. I know you saw her yeah. live. I mean, she also did this when she's performing, and we'll never hear it. It was only done once in those spaces. So that's a that's a rambling answer. but that's those would be the moments I'd pick out with the heavy caveat that there are so many, right. So,
1: you know, since she passed, a, a lot of people have, you know, asked, you know, kind of how how and where she was most impactful to me. And so, and it's funny because there's something that I just rewatched that when she sang Carol King's song. And yeah. and I and watching Carol King's reaction. Oh, I know, right? To to, to Aretha, Fre- I mean, cuz it Carol King yep. is is about as heavy a heavyweight as you can get. You know she's yeah, absolutely. she sang with and wrote with and played with and and been with everything that you that all the icons. She's as iconic as anybody. Yeah, and she literally it, it just from the YouTube clip she lost her shit. Yeah, you know watching her. You know Aretha sat down and played piano. And she's like, Carol King is literally slapping people around here. She slaps Jimmy Page <laughs> on the arm and like yells yeah, at him. Yeah. And it was, it was just that sort of thing where you go, yeah, that's the power. That's you know, that's she's Aretha Franklin's not. She's she doesn't even need the second name. It's everybody just there's never going yeah. to be another one. And if and if somebody came out and, you know, a pop girl came out and was like, my first name's Aretha, some manager's gonna be like, no, it's not. You yeah. no that's taken that's done and
2: like and nobody you know and and as many great i mean, I mean nobody it's you know nobody could nobody's ever going to be able to pull off calling themselves the queen of soul no. right nobody's no. ever gonna that's right and you know it, it's we're recording this on what, what would have been michael jackson's 60th birthday yeah. and he was the king of pop and it's the same thing or the right. king of rock you know it there are these very very few who get to hold that crown you're absolutely right
1: yeah and it's so for me the In the, in the nineties, at some point I was at, I was at the pub and it, you know, how music news used to trickle around then because, you know, it was, we had landlines. So for all of, all of you millennials, I had a landline. Um, and, uh, so it, it sort of trickled down to me that she was, she was leaving the road. She was done. She was going to retire. Yeah. And she was going back to church, which historically she's done several times.
2: That's right. But
1: I was like, well, I need to know what that is. I have, I where what I've never seen her and I, I want to see her. And I, and I got in the car and I, and I drove, you know, like I, I did as much research as I could, you know, I figured out where she lived, you know, her, I think her father was still alive at the time, maybe. And, uh, and she was singing in a choir at her home church. Oh, wow. And I, and I just showed up and like, you know, I, I dressed as appropriately as I thought I could, you know, and, and again, I was the the whitest young man in the room and I was a total right. stranger. And yeah. it was one of those things where everybody's like, oh, look, another white guy, music nerd. OK, sure. Right. Listen, hope he doesn't bother <laughs> us. And and she didn't even sing the solo that day. She was just a voice in the choir. And I just wow. thought, wow, this is cool. And I I'm, this is perfectly acceptable for me to to die in the car on the way home now. <laughs> and right. um uh, and after it was over, because after church, apparently, because I don't go to church, people just sort of mill around. And uh, and so I'm just standing there not knowing really what to do because nobody had left yet. So I felt like it, it would be impolite to be the person who leaves. And so some some wonderful people from the church are like, would you like to meet her? And I'm like, absolutely not. I do not know. I don't want to do that. No, no, it'll be fine. Oh, okay. And literally they're like, come on over. And we walked over and there she's standing and and they introduced me. And I'm like, hi. And I just had nothing. (laughs) I had had nothing to say. And she was amazing. And she like made fun of me and the whole thing. (laughs) And I was like, this is great. And now I'm going to drive my Nissan Sentra home, you know, and and it was perfect. And it was just that thing where you go, yeah, this I'm again, ridiculously blessed to have seen that. And then right. year, years later, Jim O'Connell from the Grand Theater yeah. calls me and he's like, hey, what do you think about Aretha Franklin? I'm like, yes, you should book that. Not having any sense of whether, like, there was no thought of this is a good idea or a bad idea. It was literally, I don't care what that costs. You should do that.
2: You, right. Just because yeah, absolutely. I'll,
1: I'll pay the $100,000 or whatever it is, and I'll just stand in front of her and she can sing to me all night long. And thankfully, it sold out in about fifteen minutes. So right, of course. Yeah. I was I was tremendously off the hook for that, and uh, and they let me uh, watch the show from the wings. And so cool. she was about twenty feet away from me, and uh, and it was, you know, like I've I've seen every every concert I've ever wanted to see, and it was so ridiculously powerful. I just felt like. I was going to be blown off the face of the earth. Yeah. And, uh, and at one point, like the thing that surprised me was how much time she spent playing the piano. Right. And, right. And it just, she was an amazing piano player. And, uh, and her, and her voice was unwavering. And I, I always come back to uh, Bonnie Raitt has, has said two of my favorite all time uh, quotes about music. And one of them was about Aretha Franklin, and she said that uh, when you get to heaven and you hear the voice of God, it's Aretha Franklin. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> right, okay. And then the other thing that she yeah. said, because because this will be fun for you because you're down there and you've been in this, um, she said when you get to heaven, the house band is Magic Slim and the Teardrops. Yeah, there you go. And I'm like, yeah, probably. But mm-hmm. uh, so so moving on a little bit. Um, yeah. So sort of taken a little bit broader view of, of her. So I, I know that this is something that comes out of your book and stuff. So tell me a little bit about what you think of Aretha as a civil rights figure.
2: She is uh, centrally important. I mean, you know, she was not necessarily uh, involved heavily in civil rights campaigns, although she was at times uh, doing rallies and Fundraising, She raised a lot of money over the years. There's a famous story that had sort of been recirculating after her death that is really incredible about um, that she was she offered to pay Angela Davis's bond uh, when Angela Davis was uh, was put in jail on, you know, charges of conspiracy and all these other things. And that was very much taken up as a cause by the civil rights and black power movement. Um, But, you know, she'd grown up with 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 her father as a very prominent figure, not necessarily in what we think of as the civil rights movement, uh, but as a prominent black political figure who was hanging around and working with people like Martin Luther King and other folks. Uh, So Franklin was and Franklin was very close to Martin Luther King and and um, considered herself part of that gospel tradition, both not just music, but also gospel politics. Um, so she was very important in those respects, especially that, that thing that, you know, the po- popular celebrities, one of the best things they can do for a political struggle is show up and play and give the money or give the, the, you know, the, the attention to, to whatever they're working with. And she did that a lot. But beyond that, even just the, her sort of her music, her presence, Uh, Her appearance, which became particularly at the end of the 60s and early 70s, very much connected to changes in black fashion and hairstyle Um, and just the the sort of the voice that she gave as this assertive uh, assertive symbol of African-American pride and beauty and genius who was talking in her music most mostly indirectly. Uh, but sometimes very directly, and even when it wasn't quite so direct, it was still clear to those who were listening, uh, talking about things like respect, right? Like uh, about things uh, like uh, Young, Gifted, and Black. She did a great cover of the yeah. Nina Simone song, uh, Young, Gifted, and Black. And just the, the, her rise as the queen of soul, her symbolizing of this moment in American culture when assertive celebratory blackness, capital B blackness was at the core of the culture. She was hugely influential on inspiring people in here in the United States, but also on the African continent and around the black diaspora. And then you add in that that to that, the the fact that she became such a powerful voice uh, for, for the women's movement um, and for uh, women in various strains of the feminist struggle, particularly black feminists um, who were responding to her uh, as both Someone who understood both the experience of being black in the United States, but also being a woman and being a black woman within that intersection. Uh, Just the way in which she symbolized that is hugely, hugely crucial. I think the outpouring that you see since her death and and in the days right before it, um, I hope that she was able to kind of understand because, you know, she hung around for a few days after that announcement had first come out. I hope that she was able to know how much people were talking about how much we loved and respected her. Uh, But I think that a lot of that had to do with the fact that as much as her music is just some of the greatest sound that has ever been recorded, um, she clearly represented this genius and resilience and strength and love and community and the call for respect and pride and fairness and justice in ways that were not just even about the incredible music, but about really how she was as a public persona and a public person. You know, her biggest moment of fame in the late 60s and early 70s when she's sweeping the Grammys for the R&B categories and she's selling all these records and she's on the cover of Time magazine and she's doing. she is at the center of culture, she's taken time to go raise money for uh, Jesse Jackson's organizations. She's taking time to march uh, in various different events. She's doing the thing with Angela Davis. That matters a lot. And she did that I think because she understood having come from a, 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 a an upbringing in which Art Tatum and Mahalia Jackson right. and Claire Ward and yeah. Sam Cooke and Martin Luther King and her father and all of these folks are in these conversations talking about culture and justice and 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 blackness, right? Um, so she's hugely influential. I think you know the the, the what she what she created um, helps set the table for you know to use a contemporary example for what Beyonce does. I think Beyonce, among many things that I love about Beyonce, one of them is that she clearly understands. The Aretha model, right? She understands the way uh, that one can use um, this very, you know, this this prominence and this very singular talent to try to make a larger statement. So hugely important, uh, hugely influential, um, and in ways that we might again, we might not still ever fully reckon with.
1: So I, I you brought up a, you brought up Mahalia Jackson and you brought up Nina Simone, and so sure. one of the things that because um, I'm familiar with. How, how BB King became the king, right? And uh, and I'm and I'm a little bit familiar with how Elvis, you know, was became you know the his, his version of the king, but, right? Right. So what I'm I'm wondering is, and and I don't actually know the answer to this. I was, but I I'm hoping maybe you do. How did she become the queen <laughs> of soul? And the and so the thing is what I'm, I guess what I'm really asking is there were other singers when she was a young woman, you know, but how does, how does she go from being, you know, I I mean, I, I just think of like, she, I think at one point she was recording down South as a teenager and, uh, but it, but there's a, an early pivot or somewhere where she either asserts herself or the world recognizes that she's
2: different. And so can you speak to that at all? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And I don't know enough about when exactly she becomes known as the queen of soul. That would actually be a really interesting story. And perhaps there's probably in some of the the great writing that's been done. I'm sure that there's, there's some stuff about that. Um, Certainly by the time in 1968, 1967 and 1968, Um, yeah. When she starts recording in Atlantic Records, yeah. she records some things down here, and well, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, uh, her first Atlantic recording is made in Muscle Shoals. The session itself falls apart. It's actually a really, uh, it's a really um, negative scene in a lot of ways. There are some racial slurs right. and some other things. Uh, but as soon as she starts recording that stuff, you know, then she's back in New York recording with a lot of Memphis and Muscle Shoals musicians, along with some folks from New York City blending that together, she's just on this run and she becomes, um, hugely commercially successful, hugely creatively dominant. Um, and I think part of it too, was that she was so good. She was having such a run and she hit at this moment, even though she'd been around for quite a while, even though there were others, as you totally, as you point out, there's something about Aretha Franklin in the late 1960s and early 1970s that captures this, this zeitgeist um, and the way in which she, because she's so good <laughs> and because the people working with her are so good um, that she is able to kind of emerge as that voice. I think part of it has to do with the fact that she was talking about, you know, she was recording songs like Respect, like Think, which is such a great song, um, Chain of Fools, you know, her big hits, Natural Woman, uh, later on, things like Spanish Harlem, which was a cover of an old Drifters song, but uh, or Benny King, can't remember if it was solo or with the group, uh, and she updates for the late 60s and, and a kind of funk sound and funk sensibility, just all the, even the biggest hits she has are these these quasars, these just supernovas of brilliant music, but also of a call to a community, you know, I was just doing a thing today up at the college with a couple of people where we were talking about Aretha Franklin. Um, and one of the things that one of my fellow panelists, a wonderful local writer and educator and, and artist uh, named Tanya Dyson, one of the things that she was talking about that I never really thought of this way before, but that one thing that made Aretha Franklin so powerful is that she would record these covers and she would kind of she would she would assay and assess Ah, uh, what was going on uh, in music, and it was always tapping into what was happening right then. She's recording Stevie Wonder and Otis Redding and the Beatles and Carol King. You know, she does the old jazz standards. She does the old gospel standards. Later on, she's working with Luther Vandross. Later on, she's doing. You know, she records disco stuff. You know, she's constantly. One of my favorite moments in 1999 is she records uh, a song with Lauryn Hill. She's constantly calling out. To the community, even as she's being lifted up as the queen of soul, uh, and she's doing it in a way that makes her sound so, so relevant now uh, beyond just how amazing those records are. They're so they're so deep and rich.
1: Yeah. So you you brought up the record with Lauryn Hill. So let's talk a little bit about the because I have a hard time coming to grips with. You know, sort of how pop music has taken her on, because I, I uh-huh. just don't know. So maybe you can see this a little bit clearer and less cynically than I do. So <laughs> talk a little bit about what you think her influence is. it her influence is on young performers now.
2: Sure. I mean, I well, I think partly it's she helps establish a kind of 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 singing. Um, and a kind of vocal approach, uh, which is blending the gospel church with jazz stylings and stylizations, um, and then ultimately blending that to end the blues and a few other things and blending that together into soul and R and B singing. And you can hear the, you can hear the manifestations of that on down after her. She certainly wasn't the only one, right? And she would be the first one to say that, um, I mean, you know, she loved, loved, loved Sam Cooke, and she loved, loved, loved Ray Charles, right? She loved a lot of these great singers. But uh, but you can hear that in everybody from, you know, thinking about just after her, to, you know, people like Whitney Houston and then Mariah Carey, and then going down today to people, you know, to Mary J. Blige and others. And I think you can hear it not quite as much maybe as you used to, because that kind of gospel-based singing isn't necessarily what's as popular today but the idea of these this kind of vocal vocal intensity and vocal virtuosity in the service of these songs and in the service of this sound i think you hear that on almost anybody you can hear her influence on on some country singers and rock singers and that kind of thing and certainly gospel uh as well which is a world we don't always talk about but it continues to be hugely important, obviously, and hugely profitable as well. Um, but the other thing I think beyond that is just, well, there's two, there's two other things that are related. One is that beyond how great a singer she was, she was also that great kind of auteur, right? She's playing piano brilliantly. She is either writing songs or selecting and curating a repertoire. Even though she is often either a co-producer or not a named producer, she's clearly central to the creation of her sound and her records. She helps establish an identity for particularly female artists that asserts that women not only possess musical genius, but that women also possess a self-contained kind of recording genius, that they don't need some Svengali producer, that a woman artist does not need to be stereotyped into particular categories, that women rock, that women do all those things. Again, she's not the only one, but she's hugely influential there. The other thing related to that is that she established, she helps to establish the idea of women's voices being at the center of popular music, which they long have been, even when we don't necessarily think about it. Uh, But I think a lot of artists today, from certainly someone like Beyonce, to uh to i think rihanna in a certain sense um even people like uh like ariana grande or uh uh, or cardi b right cardi b is a hip-hop artist very very different in some way from aretha franklin but i think you see those similarities there and the lauren hill thing is a perfect connection because lauren hill is an amazing singer uh and shares that with aretha franklin but beyond that i think they share a sensibility and i think that franklin recognized in lauren hill a a kindred spirit in terms of a young woman who is a genius and who is trying to negotiate being a spokesperson or being at the center of a cultural conversation there's a really really great new book uh, out about Lauren Hill by an author named Joan Morgan called She Begat This which is about the 20th anniversary of the miseducation of Lauren Hill and Joan Morgan makes that point explicitly right that Lauren Hill is thrust into the center of a culture and thrust into the center of a musical conversation because she's brilliant, but also maybe not necessarily of entirely her own intention and then has to figure out what to do with it and figure out how to live within it. And Aretha Franklin is a is an example of how you try to figure that out. So I think her influence is in some way everywhere. Um, she is... And I think that's, you know, a singer like Jennifer Hudson doesn't become Jennifer Hudson without Aretha Franklin. A singer like, uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples, and it's late at night, so I'm blanking. But sure. her influence is really deep and wide. And I think even beyond the music, trying to sound like Aretha Franklin is a fool's game. But trying to be in, a, in the model of Aretha Franklin in terms of how she approached her art uh, is actually what a lot of people should do and try to do, specifically because of the tradition and the path that she helps open up as it relates to Black women or women of color or, uh, or frankly, people who
1: aren't white men. So it's it's funny that that you put it like that because one of the things that I think about is um, specifically with Aretha Franklin, and I've and I've seen it with other folks as they've aged. This this sense of allowing yeah. allowing themselves to have the weight of their history, like not sure. not sort of, you know, not kind of blowing it off, and I and I'll and I'll use I'll I'll use you know Buddy Guy as an example because I have sure. direct experience with this. So if people ten years ago were were tired of seeing Buddy Guy in concert, he was right. And it was just because, you know, he he was off the pills and and he was talking so fucking much and he yeah. was really trying to, because I know this, he was really trying to, um, make space for people. Just to he was just trying yeah, to yeah. lighten the lighten it, you know, give it give it some space and give it some lightness sure. because he you know he wanted to he wanted to be at the time, you know. The, the older version of the heavy motherfucker that played with Junior, you know? And so as he's grown up into, since BB has passed, Buddy no longer shies away from the weight of essentially being the king, being the boss at this point. Because he would never let me call him the king. But, you know, the boss. And so sure he, uh, he, he doesn't when he's in concert now, he doesn't spend as much time talking about Stevie or Yvonne or Jimi Hendrix or any of those things. He still does. He still has those musical moments, but now he talks about the serious stuff in the, in the tradition and his personal history and the, the transformation of coming from the South to Chicago and what that all meant. And it's, and I always think that it's, it's fascinating and troubling when, you know, like actors when Morgan Freeman goes from being a young actor to being Morgan Freeman, you know, and uh, just the, the gravity of that. And I always think that Aretha Franklin accepted the gravity of who she was. She knew she was the queen of soul. She knew, you know, that of, you know, the fights with the muscle shoals guys, and she knew about her formative years and she just took that on and it never it never bogged her down, to, to my knowledge. It
2: never seemed right. like it did. I think that's you know I think that's that's true. Um, beyond the sen- you know beyond the way that our 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 histories weigh all of us down, right? Or are are part of our experience? I think that you're right though that she she embraced she embraced it, the the way in which. Her, her work and herself had become such a central and, and crucial thing. Um, you know, she became an elder, right? You know, she became a, in the truest sense, that she was thinking about her music and thinking about her career uh, in ways that were clearly designed in some way to speak a narrative about who she was and what her music was about. Um, and, you know, the other thing, that too, that, like, and you see this. I don't know if it's true with Buddy Guy. Um, I don't even know if it was true with BB King, but it's certainly true with other um, with other Black musical geniuses who get to a certain age and um, get start to get this reputation of being difficult or oh, why won't they do? Why are they doing things this way? Why are they so protective around themselves? And often, I think, and I don't know because I don't know them personally, but. It seems partly that it is a absolutely justified response to being exhausted with being not just a black person or in this case, black woman in the United States, but being someone who has given so much to all of us. And certainly, you know, Aretha Franklin was rewarded in a lot of ways. Um, But I think that part of wearing the weight of history is recognizing your own your own contribution, which I don't think that, I think she did. I don't think that she, I don't think she doubted how great she was. Um, But also getting to a point where, you know, these stories that have come out uh, particularly in the last few years about how she could be quote difficult or be a diva or all this other stuff. um, I'm sure that's possible. I'm sure that may be true, you know, but so much of that seems to me. I think a lot about Chuck Berry as it relates to this, yeah. and I think a lot about Prince too. Although Prince did not live to be an elder in that in this in that way, uh, which is of course such a shame. And Prince and Aretha Franklin always had an understanding of their of each other's art that was very deep, um, and what they were about. They got each other, I think, on a pretty deep level musically. But I think about you know the way that the United States just. The United States just wears black folk down generally, and I think when you're a black genius who has changed the world, um, it's very easy, I think, at some point to get tired of living in that world, and and you want to be able to enjoy what you have and control what you have. Um, But, I mean, in terms of her music, you know, I think it's great that the last—well, I mean, it's not great because I wish she would have been around to make a bunch more records, but— it's kind of interesting and kind of weirdly great, and I don't know if this was intended to be this way or not, but that her last album that she recorded was actually a group of covers. It was I can't remember the title of it, but it's an album from a few years ago of songs by some of her soul contemporaries uh, and then artists who came afterwards. She cuts, uh, like, I Will Survive on there and a couple of, you know, great kind of disco songs. She does uh, some more recent material. I just, I love that, that she was even at the end as she had earned her legend status she was still trying to call into that musical conversation um, you know and like i said i i'm i'm glad that i'm glad that she ended her life with some money i'm glad that she ended her life with some degree of stability and comfort cuz a lot of geniuses don't get that and a lot of black geniuses in particular don't get that um, and like I said before, I hope that the last few days of her life included either her finding out directly or somebody telling her just how much we were all going to miss her, yeah. you know? Um, and that reaction, that's one of the great things about social media is, is that we all can join in, in, in mourning or in tribute. Um, and unfortunately we just keep doing more of it because more and more of these central figures, you know, they're getting older, and it's a hard life to be a professional musician, and we're not gonna, this is just gonna keep happening, and um, I, I hate to say that we're getting good practice at it, because that's a really weird, weird way to put it, but it's kind of amazing to see how, the, how the, the Twitter sphere and social media more generally can create the kind of communities and calls and responses that the music told us to create in the first place.
1: Right, exactly, I, yes. <laughs> That's one of the things that you, that, you know, you sort of think about with, you know, there was the, um, the, the movie about James Brown and the right. the night that, uh, the night of the assassination and sort of the steps he took and sort of, right you know, you just sort of go, okay, yeah, I do, I do hope, I really do hope that she, you know, felt like, yeah, I, I, I finished, you know, cause I, right. I, I think about, you know. The, the last, the last time I saw BB and it's like, yeah, I think he felt like it was okay. Like he, you know, yeah he, he was like, yeah, I haven't picked up a guitar in a year and stuff like that, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And he's like, but I think I'm okay. You know, it's, it's that right. sort of thing where you just go. Yeah. And now, and now from what I understand, there are people standing outside an arena 24 hours a day waiting to walk in and say goodbye to her, you know, and I, right. And I'm and I'm grateful and I and I not not to make it political, but I'm going to. There aren't there aren't people lined up outside of an arena to say goodbye to John McCain, you know, and and it's that (laughs) thing, where you know, but it's that thing where you just go. Yeah, the culture is what drives us.
2: It is. It is
1: where the truth. It is where our truth is. So.
2: So. Well, and I mean, I as a good friend of mine said on many occasions you know that to him ray charles is more important than any u.s president yeah. and that's that's a bit of rhetoric you know there's a certain degree i think of intentional overstatement there but there's something and you know there's something very true about the way that musicians or other artists speak to us right. and create a community um and then try to influence that i mean you know and like i'm a I'm a white dude from central Wisconsin. I mean, I've obviously gotten very invested in thinking about things like soul music and in thinking about things like, um, like racial politics and other things. But I, you know, my level of feeling when she did pass away, I was in, I was on the West coast and so, you know, the timing was all weird. I woke up and, you know, seeing the posts about her dying it really affected me much more deeply than I was even expecting. And then to see the photos uh, today of her lying um, lying in state, <laughs> right, you know, lying uh, with, the, with the visitation that is being done in that arena in Detroit, it really affected me. And, and I think it's because on some level the great musicians teach us things about ourselves and force us to be better if, if we let them you know or at least force us to they the great gift the greatest gift of popular music the, the central gift of pop music no matter what genre it is no matter when it's from the great gift of pop music is that it reminds us that we're not alone and that to me is kind of why we see with aretha franklin or with prince or with tom petty or with any number of other figures um why we see this kind of reaction and nobody,
0: um, the other day in rehearsal, you know,
2: I, I, think when you add in the political and cultural resonance of somebody like Aretha Franklin, uh, it just it's just amplified, uh, and it's it's like it's like losing it's 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 like it's, it's, like, it's, it's, like, it's, it's, it's like losing a, a way of thinking. You know, it's like it's like watching it's like watching a philosophical and cultural tradition. die and it won't die right the music lives forever and it will continue to live but i think that's why we reckon with that in such a way because because it's i mean to me music is the way i think about the world it it determines so much of that
0: but it's just because so yeah merciful Here Say to you, don't miss tomorrow night. You haven't heard anything yet. The second half is even better. Tomorrow night you'll hear never grow. Old. Oh, I won't even tell you about it. Be here tomorrow night. Can she sing? Let's <laughs> move